2: Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. This is
1: the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman.
2: Useless Information
1: In the early morning hours of July 12, 1933, a Northern Pacific passenger train that was headed for Duluth, Minnesota, sideswiped a car that had been on the track. This occurred approximately 4 miles or 6.4 kilometers north of St. Paul. The train was brought to an immediate halt and the train crew ran over to offer assistance. The sedan itself suffered minimal damage and that's because the train pushed the car into a ditch. Only its front fender and headlight were smashed in. The driver, on the other hand, was in far worse condition. He was later identified as 45-year-old Dr. Edward John, or E.J. Engberg. He was the secretary of the State Board of Medical Examiners, and he was unconscious and bleeding from his mouth. Two shots had been fired through the window and the side of the sedan, and a rusty 32 caliber revolver with its handle taped was found lying on the floor of the car between his feet. In the back seat police found a pair of surgeon's rubber gloves, an ether mask, and a bloody towel. In the pocket of the doctor's coat, police found extra bullets and a black mask. The car that Dr. Emberg was found in was owned by 34-year-old Dr. Walter Henry, or W.H. Hedberg, a local chiropractor. Police found the chiropractor lying unconscious in a ditch about a quarter of a mile or .4 kilometers away, and he had a bullet wound in his ear. Perhaps the most interesting part of the story is that the two men had never, ever met each other before. Yet somehow their lives across paths in such an unusual way that this story would be told on the front pages of newspapers all across the country. Now, the names Engberg and Hedberg are very, very similar. So what I'm going to try and do is refer to Engberg as the doctor and Hedberg as the chiropractor, simply to make it a little bit clearer. So after regaining consciousness, Engberg, that's the doctor, he told police he had received a call at his home the previous Friday night to come to the aid of a patient. This was not unusual at a time when doctors still made house calls, but the doctor later came home and told his wife that he'd been unable to locate the patient. He did receive a call the next day explaining that another doctor had treated the patient and that if his services were needed in the future, Dr. Enberg would certainly be contacted. The doctor received another call at 8.30 p.m. on Tuesday, July 11th. That's the evening right before he was knocked unconscious by the train. So he drove in his automobile to the specified location where, open quote, the man leaped into my car. He stuck a gun against my side and warned me that I would not be harmed if I did as he directed. We drove a while and then met a car with other men. Dr. Engberg told the police, quote, I asked what they wanted me to do and was told I was expected to perform a surgical operation on a man being held captive. Of course, I refused. I did not even see the man they wanted to be the victim of that mutilation. After his refusal, what was believed to have been an ether soaked towel was wrapped around Dr. Emberg's head and he lost consciousness. That was the last he remembered. Physicians who later treated Dr. Emberg at the hospital stated that he'd been forcibly injected by a hypodermic needle. Of course, the intended target of the surgical mutilation was chiropractor Dr. Hedberg. He told a similar story being lured from his home by a telephone call seeking medical help. After arriving at the specified location, he was seized by three men. One wrapped a towel around his head as two others pressed their guns against him. And just as with Dr. Engberg, The chiropractor, that's Dr. Hedberg, he was injected with anesthesia and fell unconscious. As the effects of the anesthesia began to wear off, the chiropractor reached up, turned off the car's ignition, and he tossed the keys outside of the automobile. Of course, this didn't go over too well with his captors, and he ended up in a fight with one of them. As the tussle continued, the chiropractor, that's Hedberg, reached for the door latch and the two of them fell out onto the road, where he was briefly knocked unconscious. As he came to, he again struggled with his captors, at which point they fired two shots, and of course one of them struck him in the earlobe. Believing that Hedberg's wound had been fatal, they left his body lying in the ditch and they drove off. Their next stop was to place Dr. Engberg in the car, you know, set it up so it looked like he had committed the attack on the chiropractor, and then they left him in the car unconscious, awaiting the collision with the train. As police continued their investigation, they learned that the chiropractor, that's Hedberg, had been visited in his office on July 5th by a woman who identified herself as Miss Irene Plazo. She requested that he perform an illegal operation and offered Hedberg fifteen dollars. That's nearly three hundred dollars today. She commented, and there's a lot more where this came from. Hedberg soon determined that Miss Plazo had given him both a fictitious name and address, so he refused to take part in whatever she had planned. Mrs. Hedberg, that's the wife of the chiropractor, told police that in addition to Miss Plazo showing up at her husband's office, he'd been receiving threatening phone calls and began to fear for his life. Just in case something should happen, he opted to take out a $30,000 life insurance policy. That's about $590,000 today. Mrs. Hedberg commented, I knew Dr. Hedberg was worried about something. There's something crooked. I knew it would happen. The St. Paul police had a hunch that this whole series of events could have been the work of one of the chiropractor's disgruntled patients. So they began to scour his patient records to see if they could find any clues as to who may have engineered this bizarre plot. Fast forward a little more than five weeks to Saturday, August 19, 1933. Chiropractor Hedberg called to his wife stating that he'd be home in half an hour but he never arrived. A brakeman in the yards of the Chicago Great Western Railway spotted him early Sunday morning wandering between boxcars and warned chiropractor Hedberg to stay off the tracks. Early that Monday morning, the police received an anonymous call that there was an injured man lying on the ground in the railroad yards. When they arrived, they discovered Hedberg in a semi-conscious state with five needle marks in his right arm. He had been injected with the barbiturate sodium ametol. That's the same drug believed to have been used on Dr. Engberg in that earlier attack. While chiropractor Hedberg was in the hospital recovering, police announced that they had identified him as the sole assailant who had drugged Dr. Engberg. Officials initially considered a sanity hearing, but they ultimately decided to file charges of kidnapping and intent to kill against the chiropractor. Now the big question is why would chiropractor Hedberg want to kill Dr. Engberg? It was determined that the two really never ever had met each other before. Well, it turns out that Hedberg had been ordered by an attorney representing the State Board of Medical Examiners to remove a sign that read Physician from a window in his chiropractic office. Hedberg became enraged and refused to remove that sign. Instead, he painted the word Chiropractor in really tiny letters above the word Physician. And since Dr. Engberg was the secretary for the Medical Examiner's Board, Hedberg held him personally responsible. Hedberg pleaded not guilty to the charges, and the trial began on October 24, 1933. When Dr. Engberg was asked if chiropractor Hedberg was the man who had attacked him, he replied, Not a shadow of a doubt. The chiropractor took the stand and stuck to his story of being attacked by several men. His wife told the court of the mysterious phone calls and that her husband had told her at one point that, quote, lots of funny things have happened lately. Boy, did they. As testimony neared its conclusion, one of the jurors was declared insane. I'm not making that up. The juror was declared insane and was dismissed. The decision was made to continue with just 11 jurors. On November 8th, that's two weeks after the trial had begun, the jury needed just three hours to issue their verdict. Hedberg was acquitted and sent home a free man. So did he do it? Well, I guess we'll never know. Honestly, the evidence seemed highly stacked against Hedberg, yet a jury of his peers concluded that he was innocent of the charges. After Hedberg was released, he would continue with his chiropractic practice. In addition to having served as the president of the Minnesota Chiropractic Association, he served 20 years on the board of directors for the Logan College of Chiropractic. He passed away on August 29, 1968 at 79 years of age. As for Dr. Engberg, he was spent 31 years as a superintendent of the Faribault State School and Hospital before retiring in 1968. He was 83 years old when he died on July 18, 1971. Useless? Useful? I'll leave that for you to decide.
0: New post-war old Dutch clenter, famous for chasing dirt, presents... Nick Carter, famous for chasing crime. Every week at this time, two great names are joined as New Post for Old Dutch Cleanser brings you one of the most resourceful and daring characters in all detective fiction Nick Carter, Master Detective. Patsy, this case has been solved. How, Nick? By a talking typewriter. Did you say a talking
2: typewriter?
0: Yes, Patsy, I did. What's more, this typewriter talked about murder. Ladies, when you're pressed for time these busy days before New Year's, simply do this. Use new post-war Old Dutch cleanser made with activated seismetite in all your cleaning. Notice how amazingly fast new post-war Old Dutch cuts grease. Wonder at its new miracle-like speed as activated seismatite cleans away dirt and stains in hard or soft water. Thrilled to a new, almost effortless ease in cleaning with new post-war old Dutch. Thanks to activated seismatite, it cleans, polishes with a smooth gliding action that means less work, less rubbing. So tomorrow morning, get two packages of new post-war Old Dutch cleanser made with activated seismetite. See for yourself if it doesn't clean faster and easier than any cleanser you've ever used.
1: That commercial for Old Dutch cleanser is from the December 28th, 1947 broadcast of the Nick Carter Master Detective Radio Show. This particular episode was titled The Case of the Missing Street. Detective Nick Carter was first introduced to readers in 1886 by publishers Street and Smith. In addition to publishing the new Nick Carter Weekly, hundreds of pulp paperbacks were published based on the character. Nick Carter was finally brought to radio in 1943 And this particular show ran on the Mutual Radio Network until 1955. As for Old Dutch Cleanser, it was first introduced to the market in 1905 by Cudahy Packing, a meat packing company. Now, as a meat processing company, they had a lot of surplus fat that they wished to turn into soap. So by mixing the soap with pumiceite, that's the powdered form of the volcanic rock pumice they created their famous cleansing powder. Now, just to make it sound really fancy, they gave the pumicite the fictitious name of activated seismatite, But really, it was just pumice. The product was called Old Dutch because residents of Holland were renowned for their obsession with cleanliness. Every single package of Old Dutch featured an artist's image of a Dutch lady brandishing a stick. Now, my first impressions as a kid was she was chasing after her children and threatening to beat them. I think for that reason, the words chases dirt almost always accompanies the image. In other words, the woman is using her stick to drive away the dust and the dirt. You know, but honestly, it still looks like she's about to beat her kids. Old Dutch Cleanser is still available, although it's nowhere near as popular as it once was. Old Dutch was sold to Purex in 1955, and today it is marketed by the Fitzpatrick brothers of Chicago. They also make the kitchen cleanser and Babo cleansers a similar vintage. So the other day, the topic of Bob Ross briefly came up in my classroom. Now if you're not familiar with him, he hosted the Joy of Painting on PBS from 1983 through 1994. Sadly, he passed away from lymphoma on July 4th, 1995 at the young age of 52. What's really odd is he's probably more popular today than he was when he was alive. So here's a question for you. While most of his paintings were done on traditional canvas, he initially made money as an artist by painting on a very non-traditional object. So do you know what he painted on? we well, hang around for a bit, and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast.
2: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. So turn to the nerds to answer your real world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say.
0: Cat and Jethro, box of oddities.
2: What do
1: you do when the woman you love
0: dies? Kat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities.
2: The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media.
0: In other
1: news, here are three shorter stories that made headlines in the past. On November 14, 1946, it is reported that there was a shortage of milk bottles in Asbury Park, New Jersey. It seems that 85% of the bottles distributed by milkmen were never returned. You know, the bottles were typically either discarded or repurposed. Unfortunately, local dairies were unable to get new bottles due to a glass shortage. Dairyman William Thurman said he had ordered new bottles six months prior but he would not receive them for another 8 to 10 months. Now you're probably thinking, why not go with paper milk cartons? Well, they weren't an option either because there was a shortage of paper at the time. Keep in mind, this is right after World War II. Phil Smith of the Red Bank Dairy stated, open quote, It's always the same few who return bottles, meticulously. The same many who don't. F.J. Schapper of Sheffield Farms said, open quote, It's obvious women are ashamed to return dirty milk bottles. We'll take them clean or dirty. We'll take them from under the foundation or fish them out of the drink. We get them back from the trashmen and haul them from the dumps. In our next story, three members of the Polar Bear Club in Atlantic City, New Jersey Well, they participated in a swimming marathon on February 24th, 1957. Let's just say it didn't go very well. Now, the rules were simple. First, each man had to swim one mile in the 52 degree Fahrenheit frigid water. That's about 1.6 kilometers in water that measures 11.1 degrees Celsius. Next, each had to stand near shore in water up to their necks. The one who stayed in the water the longest, you know, won the contest. The award was $200, which was kicked in by tavern owner Saul Bogoten. That's about $1,800 today. At the 55-minute mark, the body of 36-year-old Luscious Marcel suddenly stiffened up and he was taken by ambulance to a nearby hospital. Six minutes later, 26-year-old Jack Morrison did exactly the same. Finally, four minutes after this all happened, 23-year-old Al Black was able to walk out of the water on his own, and he won the prize. It was also mentioned that an unnamed dog walked into the water to join in, and he also needed first aid. The two hospitalized men were treated for exposure and muscle contraction, while Al Black, well, he was just fine and $200 richer. And in our last story for today, if you had been in Boston in July of 1964, you could have gotten some great deals on some used books. That's because the Brattle Bookshop, which had been around for 139 years at that point, had to move out of the Sears Crescent building. It had been its home since 1825. Due to a fire months earlier and major renovations being done to the building, The rent was supposedly going up tenfold, and that was something that owner George Gloss could not afford. So instead of closing the business, he opted to move to a new store with lower rent. But to do so, he had to unload an incredibly large number of books quickly. So initially, he lowered the price of the books to 50 cents, then 25 cents, and finally a dime. But that wasn't enough. He didn't get rid of enough books, so he decided to give away 50,000 books for free. The Brattle Bookshop is still in business today, and it's one of my favorite bookstores of all time. So if you're ever in Boston and you love books, make sure you check out the store. So earlier in the podcast, I had asked you what material Bob Ross painted his early commercial works on. Did you know? Well, for 20 years, starting in 1961, Ross was enlisted in the United States Air Force, rising to the rank of Master Sergeant. Well you'd never guess that from his demeanor on the show. Anyway, he was stationed at Eelson Air Force Base in Alaska, and he would spend much of his spare time perfecting the quick painting technique that he was famous for. To supplement his military income, Ross began to paint Alaskan landscapes on a very unique material, gold pans. Each gold pan painting originally sold for $25 each, but today, if you can find one, they are worth many thousands of dollars. As for all the paintings that he did for the show, they are even harder to find, The show ran for 31 seasons, each consisting of 13 shows. And for each of the 403 shows, three of each painting was made. There was a practice one that would sit just off screen and he referred to it while filming. Then there was the second one that you saw, you know, completed on the air. And then there was a third that was photographed step by step for inclusion in his how-to books. Today, all those 1,200 plus paintings sit in the warehouse of Bob Ross Incorporated in Herndon, Virginia, and they've never been placed on sale. As for the rest of the paintings he completed outside of the show, and it's estimated to be in the tens of thousands, for some crazy reason, they just never come up for sale. So if you do see a Bob Ross painting for sale, be sure to question its authenticity. There are lots of fakes out there. On the other hand, if you do own an original, you may be able to sell it for big bucks. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. Just a little update on my book, it's mostly written at this point. I do have a few more stories to write before I bring it to a close, but there is an end in sight. The publisher currently has a mid-July release date scheduled for it, but you know that could always change. If you'd like to receive occasional updates as to when the book's available, you can just go to my website at uselessinformation.org and click on the image of the book on the left. That'll take you to a Google form that I've set up, and you can enter your contact information there. Be sure to sign up for my Twitter feed. It's at uselessinfocast, at uselessinfocast, and that'll allow you to be among the first to know when a new episode is released. Also, be sure to like the show on Facebook. Just do a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast, and it should pop up. You can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts, formerly iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. The Useless Information Podcast is part of the Recorded History Podcast Network, so be sure to go to RecordedHistory.net to learn about all the quality history podcasts that the network has to offer. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in next time. Bye!